והאיכר שיחליט לעבוד במרץ ובתוכן חוזק. אסקר על עצמו. Before we begin tonight's class, I just wanted to make a few announcements. Uh, this week is going to be Rosh Chodesh. Friday is Rosh Chodesh Adar, which is a very, very exciting time which, in which we are supposed to increase in joy. So as we have our monthly um, davening Rosh Chodesh in the morning, we have a special Hallel uh, special prayers over here on Rosh Chodesh. So I'm inviting um, this, uh, for this event, this Sunday morning, 7.15, we begin davening. At about 8 o'clock, we have halal accompanied by guitars and singing. It's going to be really, really extraordinarily special. Um, this event is a men's only event, I'm sorry, even though we've had a ladies' evening of music just of two weeks ago. So I don't feel so bad. <laughs> um, so but come join us this Friday. Whoever has been here before, it's very powerful. This Friday, beginning at, at 7.15 in the morning, a.m., followed by a special breakfast in honor of Rosh Chodesh. Another, this is another very important uh, announcement. We are beginning a series of a three-part lecture series. Uh, it's been in, within me a long time that I wanted to do this, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't come together till now, but now it is coming together. Um, it's gonna be a three-part lecture series, or let's put it this way, there's gonna be a, a lecture series that is gonna have cover three semesters. Basic, and that is, if anybody wants to study the subject of Moshiach thoroughly, in a very, very, very fundamental way. So we're going to have three s- series. The first one, it's all studying the Moshiach from the perspective of Halacha, Kabbalah, Hasidus, to get a really solid understanding on the essential element of Moshiach, the era of Moshiach, Moshiach himself, and so on and so forth. Um, it's going to start this Sunday, 10 a.m., here at Mayon. Uh, you don't have to sign up before. 
but there could sign up online that probably be up on Wednesday where you can sign up for the course. Um, it's $10 per class. If you sign up for the entire series, that means the first semester of the series, so you get all six classes for $36. Um, so it's a good thing to sign up and it also helps you make a commitment to come. So it will be six consecutive Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock for men and women, a very, very fundamental this, um, um, study of, of Mashiach, everything pertaining to Mashiach. The first semester is called Mashiach the person. The second semester is called Mashiach the era. And the third semester is gonna be Moshiach, the process, the process of the Giyula, of the redemption. Um, this Sunday starts February 18th, is the introduction class. Uh, we're going we're gonna to learn thoroughly about the sources, who are the reliable sources to give us an understanding and why these are the sources, why, why we are basing our beliefs on these particular sources that clarify a very, very strong understanding of what Mashiach is all about. The next class is going to be job, job description. Uh, what, is, what does Mashiach need to accomplish? The following class is, going, is called King Mashiach. Why would a modern world go back to a monarchy? Um, the next class is going to be co is called gl Global Influence. How will the greater humanity take to a Jewish king. Um, and then the last and final class in this series, right before Pesach, is called Higher Power. And what is the spiritual strength of this greatest human being? So this is really, really phenomenal classes not to be missed. Taking place Sunday mornings, beginning this Sunday at 10 o'clock. Um, I'm putting in a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of research into this class. So with Hashem's help, it's going to be really, really special. So come join us. The second semester is going to be after Pesach. And then the third semester is going to be during the summer months. Okay? Um, the reason it is so important to learn about Mashiach is, first of all, because we have to be current with the times. Secondly, the more we take Mashiach seriously and study about it, and enter into our consciousness, that makes it happen quicker and smoother for the entire world. So anybody that wants to participate in the greatest task of all time to bring Mashiach, this is the smoothest, most direct way. And also, it's going to be very enjoyable classes, Be'ezrat Hashem. So come join us on Sunday. So that's the announcements. Now we'll quickly do the dedications for today. In today's class, the Shir and the CD was sponsored by Rabbi Yossi Gordon. And this is in honor of his father, Olav Sholem. Rabbi Gordon from the Valley, Rabbi Josh Gordon, Harav Yeshua Ben Yamin Ben Rav Sholem Dov Ber, who is I think second yard side, comes out on the 29th of Shvat. He's been such a light and such a powerhouse in the Los Angeles community. Um, may his neshama have the greatest aliyah, and may he send us all, and especially to his family, tremendous blessings and, and energy to complete the task that he had so devoted himself to, the love and the education of every Jew, and the lifting up of Jews and preparing the world for Mashiach. So may we merit that Rabbi, Rabbi Gordon should be 
returned back here into his body because that's where all souls are going to return very, very soon, especially those that were on the forefront of the work of bringing Mashiach. They will definitely be here at the time of Mashiach's arrival. So we want to bless his family to merit the return of Rabbi, Rabbi Gordon. And until then, he should shine his light and his bracha for his family and all that they need and all that they want from only, only good. And he should have a very great alias neshama. Next um, dedication was by Rabbi and Mrs. Shalom El Harar. And this is in honor of their daughter's wedding. This Thursday, Sarah is getting married to Zevi Haller from Johannesburg. Mazel Tov and Mazel Tov and Mazel Tov. It should be a binyan adeyad. It should be an uh, everlasting home with much joy and happiness. And then children and generations, healthy children, a house full of laughter, a house full of love, a house full of light and happiness and only, only, only good. Um, thank you for that dedication. Another dedication tonight was by Terry Levin. And this is an honor of her uncle, Allah Shalom, Yisrael ben Shmuel Yecheskel Halevi, and her grandmother, Fege Bas Shmuel, Allah Shalom, whose yard sites are on the first and third of Ador. May their neshamas have a very great aliyah. And may they channel lots and lots of goodies, revealed good to you, Terry, only revealed good, much, much, much blessings, tangible good that should just bring so much light and happiness into your life. Thank you for that dedication. And last but not least, Nahid Debral, who always usually is here for classes, she's not here tonight, dedicated tonight's class for success in life, Shidduch Parnasa, good health, Shalom, and most important request she has should be our, all of our most important request, the coming of Moshiach now. Elisheva Tzipora Basyael and Moshe. Okay. Thank you for those dedications. We are about to begin. As mentioned earlier this week, we begin the month of Adar. And the month of Adar is our happy month. The sages tell us, when Ador comes in, we increase in joy. Now we also know that the energy that we get for every time of the year, we serve God in a unique, special way as the year passes. Every season brings its own, its own character. The month of Ador brings us joy. Other times of the year, you know, we have different, different experiences as we go through the year. The, and the energy and the instruction and the, and of how to get into the spirit of every holiday, we derive from the Torah that we study. And everybody studies other parts of Torah because the Jew, we have a vast Torah with a vast, vast Jewish library. And we can study all parts of the Torah. But the part that we're all commonly study, all Jewish people, no matter what sect you're in, all Jewish people across the board that study Torah, study Parsha Sashavua. So we're all studying the same Torah portion. And this week's Torah portion is Parshas Truma, which means to tell us that the joy that we have in the month of Adar is somehow related to what we read about in Parshas Truma. So we need to look into this week's Parsha and try to find the lesson or where do we have our joy button in Parshas Truma. What is it that we can, what we discover in this week's Parsha that can make us so happy? Well. It can't mean that you have to search very, 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 very far or very, very deep 
because then most Jews would not have the time, everybody's busy, that we should be able to look so far and look so deep. It must be right at the beginning of the parsha that we read this, we become very, very happy. So here's a, and we spoke about this in previous years, but today is like a revolution, a whole new idea. But it's so simple, yet so empowering and so amazing. When you read in the beginning of the parsha, it's, Parsha Truma talks about this is the first Jewish appeal for money. Okay? Uh, God wants a home. And the Jewish people are going to participate in giving tzedakah. And everybody's going to contribute. And we're going to build a home for Hashem. The name of the Parsha is Truma. Truma means lifting up, giving a, to, to lift up, setting aside a portion. So we're giving a portion. And Moshe Rabbeinu instructs the Jewish people on the items that they can bring for the Mishkan. It wasn't money that people gave. They, gave. they gave certain things, certain items, which these materials were used to construct in the Mishkan. Everything that was used in the Mishkan was donated by the people. And it wasn't a mandatory donation, even though there was some mandatory. A half a silver coin, a half of a coin, was called a machzis shekel. That was a, ma- a mandatory uh, uh, donation. It was like a tax that everybody had to give. That was not too much money. That was a little bit. But in addition to that, there was a separate collection in which the Jewish people were to give, and everybody gave as much as they want. The Pusik, the verse tells us specifically it cannot be imposed. It has to be everybody according to the generosity and the goodness of their heart. Kol liboy. And the instruction was to everybody. Men, women, and in, in Ovis the Rebbe Nassan, which is a uh, ethics of the fathers, but not the one of the Mishnah, but the more elaborate version called Ovis the Rebbe Nassan, over there it says that the donation and the instructions to take part in the Mishkan was even to children. So everybody, young and old, the entire Jewish people, everybody was commanded to participate in both the building of the Mishkan and primarily in the donation and the contribution to contribute for the building of the Mishkan. It lists inside the Pasuk 15 um, materials in which they can bring. And it goes down the list of what the materials are that should be brought for the Mishkan. The first thing it says is metallics. There are three types of metals that they brought. And they were Zahav, gold, Kesef, silver, and copper. And this is the donation. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, this is what you should collect from them. Gold, silver, and copper. And then it says, and blue wool, and purple wool. I mean, wool dyed with a blue dye. Wool dyed with a purple dye. Red dye wool. And linen. And goat's hair. And goat's and hide from rams. Rams hide. Mudamim died red. And a special animal that was a very beautiful animal called the Tachash. It's hide. And a special kind of a wood. Acacia wood or some kind of a wood. Shemen oil that would be used for lighting. Besamim and different types of spices which they would make use for the fragrance. Shemen for the fragrant oil of the Ketores Asamim and for the Ketores. Uh, that they offered, the, the spice offering. Then Avnei Shoham, then they had special gems that they needed, precious stones. Shoham stones, 
va'avnei meluyim and filling stones, which they used different types of precious gems. La'efoid v'lachoshen, which was for the high priest's breastplate and for his apron that he wore. So this is what they need. These were the 15 items. The question we have over here is in the order of the list, the way God lists the order. The first thing that's mentioned is gold. Then it sells silver and copper. And immediately it becomes the question, and Mephorshim asked the question, why is gold the first thing on the list? Gold obviously is very, very expensive, a very, very, very precious item, of very great value. And the question is, what, this, 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 if, if you're listing things, you would list things by the lesser, you're giving a chance everybody to bring. So you start with that which is of a lesser value, and then you work your way up. You give this, and you can give this, and you give even this, and you can give that, and so on and so forth. I mean, you can't say that the Torah, you might say the opposite. The Torah is starting with the highest, most preferable gift. Give gold. You can't give gold, at least give silver. You can't give silver, you'll give copper, and then it goes down. You can't say that. Because if you go through the list of the items that are there, at the very, very end of the list are the precious gems, stones, and the, uh, the filling stones. So these are obviously at least as valuable as the gold, or maybe even of greater value. Yet, yeah, and, and it's put in the end. So what's the order? If you're going by the lesser value to greater value, or you're going from greater value to lesser value. But the first item that it mentions is gold, and the last item that it mentions are the precious gems. So why would it, why, why would it give us this order? And again, if you think about it a little more, um, the order that, we sh- that, that, that would have made the most sense is to look for commodities that everybody has and then to go to the more unique things that not everybody has. That's actually the reason, if you take a, the reason why it puts the metals first. Gold, silver, and copper is because as Nachmanides says later in Vayakel, not in this parsha, Ramban, in Parsha's Vayakel, Ramban says, and also Evan Ezra says over here that these items was everybody had. People took, because when they went out of Egypt, they took the, the jewelry from the Egyptians. So they took out masses of gold and silver and copper and bronze. They, they had a lot of, of, of that. The next items, not everybody had wool dyed with a with dyed blue. Not everybody had a purple dye wool. These were materials that were less. And as you go through the things, less people had ram skins. And then even less than that, people that had wood. Because Rashi says, Rashi asks the question, where did they have wood in the desert in the first place? Where did they have lumber in the desert? It was a desert, nothing besides some Joshua trees and some cactuses. Nothing grows there. So Rashi says, because Yaakov Avinu, our grandfather Jacob, went and planted trees in Egypt. And he told his children that when they leave Egypt, because he knew that they're going to have to, they're going to need the wood for the construction of the temple. So he told his children that when you leave Egypt, make sure to fell these trees, to cut them down, take along the lumber. But we understand not everybody took the lumber. There were a couple of Jews who had the lumber trees who took, the, took it with them. So that's why the Torah puts the lumber and the wood at the end of the list, right? Not at, not at the beginning, but kind, of, but kind of further down in the list, the Torah puts the, puts the lumber. 
So we can see that all the items that are mentioned, and finally, finally, the, um, finally the, uh, the, 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 the precious gems, they're mentioned last. Because no one had that. Actually, only the Nesim, the Nesim were the heads of the tribes. They were like the prince of each, each tribe had a leader, tribe leader. Obviously, these were prestigious people. In addition to being righteous people and great men, they also had wealth. And therefore, they were the ones who had the precious gems. According to the Midrash, even they didn't have the precious gems. And there were, when it says in the Parsha, HaNesim Heviu, that the Nesim, later in Vayakil, it says the Nesim, the, the heads of the tribes, brought the precious gems. It says that the, the Nesim says without a Yud. And one of the reasons it's stated, usually it should say Nesim with, with, with a Yud. That's how you spell the word Nesim. It's The wood is emitted, I'm sorry, the Yud is emitted. And the reason is because you can also read it clouds. Nesim, which Nesim would mean the clouds. Which means that a miracle happened. And the clouds, because they needed these precious gems, which come from all over the world. And who brought it to them? The clouds came and dropped it by the Nesim, by the... By the uh, by the leader's doorsteps, and they're the ones who got these precious gems. So that's why it's mentioned last. So you see, the order of everything listed goes from that which was most common to that which was le- le- less common. More rare something is, it goes to the back of the line. If that's the case, between the three metals itself, there is gold, and there is silver, and there is copper. Now, silver and copper, generally, we have much more than we have gold. Gold is a very, very rare, that's why gold has so much value. It's people, there's less gold. That's why later, you, t- you, t- you see, Nachmanides actually says, when they actually came to bring, see, in this week's parsha, we have an appeal. Moshe Rabbeinu is soliciting. He's telling the Jewish people, God commanded us to build a special home for him, Everybody should donate, it says over here. In Parshas Vayakel, which we're going to read in a few weeks from now, that's where the Torah repeats, and over there it says how this actually materialized, that the Jewish people went, they, Moshe gathered the Jewish people, he gives them the instructions, and they, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. In this week's Parsha, Moshe is not telling it to the people at all. God is instructing Moshe on what the Jewish people should bring. Moshe is not talking to the Jewish people yet. In Parshas Vayakel, that's when Moshe gathers the Jewish people, instructs them on building a Mishkan, tells them the materials that God wants, and it says the Jewish people brought the stuff. And when it says that they brought it, the Pasuk says, everybody that waved gold brought the gold. Kol Meirim Zav. Everybody that waved the gold. Then it says, everybody that brought silver and copper. So Nachmanides notices that in the verse regarding the gold, it says whoever waved the gold. And in the verse regarding the silver and the copper, it doesn't say that it was waved. So the Nachmanides says, is because since gold is less, there's less gold, and therefore there were less gold donations, they didn't have that many donations of gold like they had silver and copper because we can understand people had much more silver and copper. It is for that reason that when they brought gold, it was waved. Oh, like this, well, this guy, you know, like so it was a big donation, so they waved it up. So you see, now one, one might argue and one might say, well, everybody was rich. 
All the Jewish people, we know that when they went out of Egypt, they were all rich. The, the Talmud says in Mesechtas Bechoyeris, Davhei, fifth page of Mesechtas, that there wasn't a Jew who left Egypt that had less than 90 donkeys loaded. And, and, and it says, interesting, it doesn't say donkeys. It says a special kind of donkey. So, you know, you have, you have an ordinary donkey, and then you'll have like a donkey with uh, extra horsepower, you know, an extra special donkey, you know, it's got extra power to be a... So the, the, the Gemara says that, this, that, that every Jew, there wasn't a Jew who asked less than 90 donkeys loaded with valuables that they took out of Egypt. So you can say everybody was rich, so everybody had gold, so everybody can donate gold. But it's not true. You see later by the mitzvah of Machzis HaShekel, when, in Parsha, when, when Hashem is asking for a half a silver coin, it says clearly over there by the instructions, a rich man cannot give more, and a poor man can't give less. That means even in their rich world, there were the richer and the less rich. Those that were called poor compared to the other ones that were rich. The Kliyakar, one of the commentaries over here also, you see when he writes, he says that, that there was rich and poor, and not everybody afforded gold. Some people can only give silver and copper and the like. If that's the case, even though the metallics, all the metals, were there more than everything else, that's why we put the metals first. The other things were kind of more unique specialty items that not everybody had. But then the question is, within the gold, the silver and the copper, why is gold mentioned first? In addition to that, to make the question stronger, the actual necessity in the Mishkan, in the Mishkan, what did they need more? What was needed more? They used more silver and they used more copper. Like you see later, Parshas Pekude, the last Torah portion in Parshas Shemos, lists the accounting, gives us an accounting of how much gold came in and how much gold was used in the construction. How much silver came in and how much silver was used in the construction. How much copper came in and how much copper was used in the construction. And over there clearly it states there was much more copper and much more silver and less gold. So you see, for the, for the Mishkan, gold was needed less than... So two things. First of all, from the perspective of the donors, gold was something that we didn't have. Not everybody had gold. So why would you put that first as the first donation? Secondly, in terms of the necessity, what we need, gold was of a lesser... The amount of gold. I mean, they needed gold, but it was a lot of gold, but it was of a lesser necessity. So then it should have been stated last. So to understand this, we need to really, because the, 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 the lesson, and, and, and especially since the Torah, the Torah is a guide, and the Torah is, is here to teach us. And the question is also, what do we learn today from this idea that gold was the first thing that the Jewish people were commanded to give? One thing I can tell you, no one in the world that's sitting, no one over here, or no one will guess the answer. <laughs> Usually I can think you might be thinking, okay, the answer is such an amazing, is such an amazing answer. It's so simple yet so crazy. And um, this year, particularly for those who are, who are been here the last few weeks, I'm reviewing and I'm giving over the last, last final talks that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave. And this is literally two weeks before, two, three weeks before his stroke. And the Rebbe spoke Parsha Struma and he asked this question. And the answer that he gave is so, is so, amazingly special and so empowering and so uplifting and so transformative this question on the why we need and what is the lesson for us in the gold so we'll get to that in a moment but first the question the in order to understand this let's explore something else 
You know, the making of the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan was the ultimate, it was the ultimate um, metamorphosis possible. It was the ultimate transformation. I mean, something, I mean, the, 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 the very notion that human beings can create something and where God himself will come down and live. You know, the Mishkan wasn't figuratively a holy place. God was actually there. God, yeah, God. Which God? The entire God. <laughs> the the Pasuk says so. Hashem contracted his Shekhinah. Contraction doesn't mean he diluted. He compressed. Hashem compressed himself. God was infinite compressed himself between the two poles of the Aron, and that's where he lived. And the angels above that always say, where is the place of his glory? They can't fathom where Hashem is because God's light transcends, infinitely transcends all the spiritual worlds and the spiritual, spiritual world and the most sublime and the most the most higher and higher and higher celestial realms above and 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 endlessly above. They have absolutely no grasp, no reach. They can't fathom. They can't know because God is above them all. Zohar says, the Zohar says, no thought can grasp him. That means he's infinitely above everything. So he can't dwell anywhere. And yet, where does he dwell? In our little physical home that we made for him. God instructed, build me a house and I am going to move into that home. The Asili Migdash, make for me a base Migdash, and I will dwell. That is radical. That is crazy. You see, when Shlomo HaMelech built the base Migdash, Shlomo HaMelech exclaimed in awe. He himself couldn't fathom what was just happening. He said, these are the words. He says, Hashemayim, Hashemayim, the heavens and the heavens of the heavens. Shlomo HaMelech understood what means heaven. And heaven of heavens. We're talking about so, so sublime, so high, so, such worlds of brilliance, worlds of light. Lo yechal kelucha, they can't contain you. And King Solomon said, Afki And I built a building of stones. And that building of stones can, can facilitate you, can host you. How is that possible? It can't be. It's a wonder, but that's what, that's what the making of the Mishkan is. So the question over here is, we would then expect, in order to accomplish something so great, you need to have extraordinary people doing this. Extraordinary tzaddikim. Unbelievable righteous individuals. These are the people, it should have been kind of selecting, obviously, to be able to do this, you would look for a super, super tzaddik, a very, very holy person who can do something and have deep mystical meditations while he's doing it and have all the kavanot written by the Arizal and the unifications and he dips in a mikvah and he fasts for 40 days before he starts the work. The truth is, God did tell Moshe Rabbeinu who's going to build the Mishkan. And he selected, he selected a man called Bitzalel. And he selected another person called Eholihov. And these were the leaders. And it says in the Pasuk, they had a team. And these were not ordinary people. These were exquisite craftsmen. 
These were the most skilled craftsmen ever to live. It says God gifted them with the gift of knowledge. And we know that it wasn't only physical knowledge. It was spiritual knowledge. B'tzalel was the most super capitalist. The, the, the Medrash tells us that B'tzalel knew the entire code, genetic code of the cosmos. He knew all the letters that God used when he created the world. God created the world through words. He knew the combinations of letters of everything. He knew the super code of all of existence. And when he made the Mishkan, he mimicked, he copied in his small little structure that he made, he kind of, he, 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 he made it resemble everything and had all the, all the, all the, all the um, meditations of all the pure permutations of God's name. And he, he had all that in mind when he built the Mishkan. Well, we can understand. But here's the question. True, there were selected people that were allowed into the club of actually fashioning it and making it and doing it. But the actual mitzvah to make the Mishkan is to all the Jewish people. And everybody was asked to contribute. Not every, men, women, and as I mentioned earlier, even little children. And everybody was told to bring. And the Pasuk says, do not deny anybody. Don't say when a person comes and he's bringing his donation and Moshe, we know Moshe has holy eyes. Moshe has powerful eyes. He's got prophecy on his... He can look into someone's soul and one minute know everything. Moshe, don't ever say to a Jew, you're too dirty, you're too ugly, you're too sinful, you're too lowly. Get out of here. How dare you have the chutzpah to walk in in front of God and bring me your money when you know that what you've done yesterday, God forbid, if you know, you think that... God says to Moshe, don't you dare do that. Kolish, every person. Asher Yedvenu Liboy, whose heart donates, accepted from everybody. And here's the question. How is it that to accomplish something so big, everybody was allowed to contribute? To make the question stronger. When the Pasuk says, you should make for me a Mishkan, the Pasuk says, Vayikhu li teruma." You should bring for me, you should take for me to Ruma. Now whenever it says li, Rashi says lishmi. Lishmi means that the actual contribution must be done with purity of heart. That means you need to give it, not for ulterior motives. You need to give it with a pure heart. For what reason? To serve Hashem. That's why you have to give it. I'm giving it because I want, not because I want people to say, Ooh, this guy, he gave a nice donation. It should be written, it should be, I should be, it should have a plaque on the wall and say, he donated. No, 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 that's for self, you know, for, for, for a person who wants to make himself important. No, 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 no. It has to be given for me because you love me and you want to give something to me. This is the idea called lishma. Lishma means to do a mitzvah for the right intentions without ulterior motives. The question is, the Rambam Maimonides in his laws of tshuva, which I'm going to read to you right now, Rambam in his Hilchis Tshuva, Rambam says that a person should not do mitzvahs. A person shouldn't say, I'm doing mitzvahs and I'm going to study the Torah so that I should receive all the blessings. Because that's considered ulterior motives. Don't do it for that purpose. Instead, you should do it. He says, when someone serves God for these reasons, this is external, this is not the real way of serving Hashem. The real way of serving Hashem, this is in the 10th chapter of the laws of Tshuva, is not to do it because you're afraid that God is going to punish you, and not to do the mitzvahs because you want to receive reward. Only, he says, you do, you do the truth because it's true. 
That's what you're doing, because it's the right thing to do. But then the Rambam says, this type of service, Rambam says, this is a very, <coughs> very, very high, high service. This is of great quality. And hear the words of Rambam. And not every, even a wise man, even a tzaddik, not everybody merits to be able to serve God with, like this. Most people can't. Most people have some ulterior motive in whatever they do. There's only very few, few. And Rambam says, who served God like that? Avram Avinu, our father Abraham. He served God with, pure, with a pure heart. Most people can't do it. Then Rambam says, but here, Rambam says, and therefore we shouldn't. Oh, so, but still the Rambam says, you shouldn't not do it because of that, if you're not a pure motive. Because eventually, hopefully, if you start doing things with ulterior motives, eventually you'll get there. We'll speak about that soon. But really, objectively, the best way of doing a mitzvah is to be doing it of pure of heart. But Ramam says most people are not capable of that. If that's the case, how is it by the mitzvah of, we can understand, you're creating a home for God, and especially based on what we said before, that God hates arrogance, and arrogance literally creates a stench that God doesn't like, that, 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 that the God does, can't tolerate. So if someone does... And we're asking everybody to everybody contribute. And amongst them, you have people doing it for all kinds of reasons. Because you're asking the masses. The masses means everybody. So then how do you expect that these people should be able to create <coughs> the vessel, the container, for God himself to come down to live there? Doesn't make any sense. How it was possible that ordinary people, we would think, you need it, it should have been collected from the greatest tzaddikim. The answer to this question is very, very profound, but also profoundly simple, but very, very special. And that is as follows. The purpose, the, the, the building of the Mishkan happened immediately after the giving of the Torah. When God gave the Torah, God connected the highest of the high with the lowest of the low. First of all, by the giving of the Torah, God himself came down like there was never such a revelation. God himself appeared in the physical realm to the point that he spoke through physical sound and our earthy physical ears could hear him. We actually saw, we had a vision with our eyes and we apprehended God in some physical way. It says God had an appearance of an old man, but we saw him. That means that the highest of the high manifested and came down into the lowest of the low. And this, was, and this was a one-time event, the only time until Mashiach comes, when God will be tangibly experienced in the physical senses. And again, the people were not lifted up to the spiritual realms. God didn't lift the people up to Gan Eden and give them the Torah. The people remained here on earth. Their feet were touching the sand of the desert. They were, they, they were grounded. And in that grounded state, they experienced God. But the, the reason it was by the giving of the Torah that way, because the purpose of the giving of the Torah is that we, for the next Thousands of years through execution of the mitzvahs of the Torah, through us performing these mitzvahs, learning Torah and doing all those mitzvahs, we will connect heaven and earth. We will connect the godly with the material, with the physical. The physical world is the most coarse, the most disconnected, the most concealing of Hashem. And the purpose of the giving of the Torah is that we should 
merge the two together. As it says in the Medrash, that until the giving of the Torah, we spoke about this countless times, that until the giving of the Torah, there was a great divide between spirit and matter. The upper world, Shamayim, Shamayim, Hashem, spiritual was spiritual, physical was physical, the two could not combine together. After the Torah was given, we, when we do a mitzvah, for instance, we give tzedakah, so it's not just you're doing something that God likes you to do. We're not aware right now what's happening when we're giving tzedakah. But when we are giving tzedakah, what's happening is our physical arm and our physical fingers is now becoming an extension of God's physical arm. And your arm and God's arm are totally one. And he is giving the the poor man that money because it's his responsibility to feed the poor. He created them. He's responsible. But he and your hand are becoming unified. And you're channeling God's. That means your physical arm and Hashem are becoming unified. Heaven and earth are connecting. You are now godly. That's the point of a mitzvah. The coin is also a divine transmission, now manifesting as something physical, the dollar bill. And the same is everything in the world. Being that that's the purpose of the giving of the Torah, for us to converge heaven and earth, before we can accomplish that in the world, it first needed to be accomplished in each and every one of us. That means we first had to synchronize with our highest spiritual roots, and not just synchronize, but totally connect while we're in the bodies down here, we become connected and unified to our quintessential, very, very essence that is we're up there in heaven. What's our essence? The essence of a Jew is that every Jew is a... We have essence of a Jew is our soul. And our soul is a literally a piece of God from above. Your soul is not a creation. Your soul is divine. And I spoke about this two weeks, three weeks ago. And I said something very, sounds very radical, but that's the truth. Since our souls are a piece of the essence, the essence of God, not Hashem's rays. Hashem has a lot of light that He emanates. A neshama comes from the essence, chelek alakai, from the essence. So the Baal Shem Tov says, when you take a piece of the essence, the essence is indivisible into pieces. Every piece contains the whole thing. So therefore, the essence, when you have a little bit of it, you have the entire thing. Because you can't cut off a piece. That means our soul, in truth of truth, our soul is the full entirety of Hashem. That's our neshama. Because it's one with God. That's our truth. The truth of every Jew is that he's one with Hashem. Yidin and God are totally one. It's only that one. From our neshamas being a piece of God is a long, long journey as our neshamas metamorphosize and change and change and change and change and change and change until we come down here as physical people, physical beings, where we have all kinds of selfish, we have a, a very, we're not feeling ourselves as part of God, we're feeling ourselves as a part separated of Hashem. Not only that, we have all kinds of not such refined characteristics and desires and wants. And then even when we're inspired to do good things, we're inspired for all kinds of selfish motives, self-aggrandizement, self-importance. We want people to, to give us attention and the like. All that is what? The external, once the neshama comes down here and is working in our body, and the body is very, very rough material, very dark stuff. And it kind of bewilders and blocks and conceals and doesn't allow the soul to be its true self. So, but here's a very important, a 
very important idea. There's a tremendous difference prior to the giving of the Torah and post giving of the Torah. Prior to the giving of the Torah, your soul, which was a piece of God from heaven, is up there. That's in heaven. Your soul down here is disconnected. You are who you are down here because heaven and earth are not connected. So there is a higher you, but that's a gazillion miles away, and there's a lower you. So when you're operating down here, when a person before the giving of the Torah operated down here, he wasn't operating as an expression or as an extension of a soul up there. You, you are who you are. What you are is what you are. What we see, that's what it is. So therefore, every person's righteousness, every person's value is based on their own personal refinement. How much do you really reveal of... how? how how pure are you? And then there's all kinds of Jews. Once the Torah was given and God unified heaven and earth, if we are to affect that in the physical world, that has to first be true about us. That means that our soul that's in our body connected to our soul root that is a piece of God from above. And therefore, and that divinity, that essential divine spark that is one with Hashem, is revealed and is now the truth of our soul that's in, the, that's in the body. Not the soul up there, the soul that's in the body. And that means that the truth of every Jew, from when the Torah is given till today, the truth of every Jew, when you're doing something, it's not, it's not us as creations doing something. It's a piece of God because the essence of the Jew down here is that what we call the pintalayid, that that, that spark of the divine. And that is manifest. So even if we're not conscious of it, here's the thing. It doesn't mean that after the, we all became enlightened people, we're all these godly, godly beings. No! We're, we're, we're precisely very, very human, very earthy, very regular, sometimes even partially animalistic. That's who we are. That's our consciousness. But that does not take away from the fact that our true identity and our true being, even when we're down here, is that we are godly beings. And where does that manifest? It manifests as well. Is number one, you have to understand that we do not consider the chitzonius. We do not look at the external what, what we see. What we see doesn't matter. That's why the sages tell us, Yisrael, a Jew, even though he sins, Yisrael, he's still a Jew. In other words, he has all the holiness of a Jew, even though this person is a sinner, Sheba sinner. He's done every sin that there is in the Torah intentionally. It doesn't change the fact that he is a holy, holy Jew. Why? Because his essence is there and it is manifested. In his, because Hashem has chosen this person by the giving of the Torah, Hashem chose the Jew and he chose him as a person in a body, not as a soul up there, but as a neshama down in, 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 in the body. And that's the truth of all of us. That's why Rambam tells us an interesting thing. That if God forbids, we, 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 a person experiences desires, impulses, wants that are opposite of the divine will, Rambam says you should know that that's alien, that's not the, tr that's not the true person. Rambam says a halacha. When a Jew has a mitzvah to do and the Jew doesn't want to do the mitzvah, when there was a Jewish court, the court was able to compel the person to do the mitzvah. Exerting force. Even a mitzvah that is supposed to be done out of the person's goodwill. There's certain mitzvahs that it says, let's say, 
a certain a carbon giving a sacrifice was supposed to be done. Lertzono, the verse says it's not kosher if it was compelled. It has to be done from the person's goodwill. What happens if someone is obligated to bring a carbon but he doesn't want to do it? So there are, there are times, again not today, but when the time when there was a court, they can force the person, even beat him, until he brought the sacrifice. But it's not kosher. So what they did is they, they forced him until he said, I want. They didn't beat him until he did it. They beat him until he says he wants. And the moment he says he wants, oh, then he says he wants. So we look at it, Ramam asks the question, but isn't that insane? Isn't that totally ludicrous? Don't you realize that by beating him, you just forced him to say he wants because he wants you to stop lashing him? Like, what's the point of getting someone to say he wants? So the Rambam becomes, suddenly the Rambam is a psychologist. And Rambam says like this, this is way, day, way, way, way before modern psychology. The Rambam says the truth is that every Jew wants to do is Jewish. And the true essence of his soul, he wants to do what God, he says that about every Jew. Every Jew wants to do everything Hashem wants him to do. If he's not doing it, it's because his Yetzirah's evil inclination is now preventing him from doing what he wants to do, he or she wants to do. So when we're beating him, all we're doing is we're beating the Yetzirah away. We're knocking the way someone is interfering. In other words, imagine someone who's being beaten to do... We're pulling that person off. We're pulling the aggressor away, the one that's interfering. And we're allowing the true person to reveal himself. Who's the true person? true person is the Jew who wants to do the mitzvah. So you see from here that halachically it has been established that no matter how far, even if a person claims to be an atheist, he is a holy Jew with his true identity is that he's a piece of God from above. That's who he is. Even down here in his body, that's who he is. Number one. Now let's take you to another law of Rambam, which will actually explain what I asked before. We said before that when you're giving tzedakah, or when you're giving for the mishkan, it needs to be done lishma. Lishma means without ulterior motive, you're doing it for the right purpose. So there's an, and I asked before, well, the guy is doing it, the guy has personal motives. So here this idea. Rambam says that if, Rambam says in the law, same laws of tshuva. The Rambam says, so with little children, how are you going to get them to study Torah? If you're going to try to study and only learn with children who are serving God for the purpose, for the right purposes, then you're not going to find any child. You might find like, you know, there's a few, we always have stories of a few tzaddikim that were born tzaddikim. When they were already three years old, their minds were just thinking about Hashem. Those were very few. Most kids like candies and chocolate. That's what they like, and toys. So Ramam says, learn with them Torah and give them candies and give them chocolate and give them toys. And so you should, and for people when they get older, promise them reward. And then promise them reward of Olam Haba. That's also reward. Do all kinds. Why? The Ramam says, because mitaych shaloy lishma, from doing it for, for ulterior motives, they'll start getting it. Once they're doing it, they'll eventually get a sense and an appreciation for its true value. And they'll do it for non... Mitaych shaloy lishma balishma. Because they did it for non... They did it, in other words, from the doing, which is shaloy lishma, they will eventually do it lishma. The way everybody understands this until Hasidus comes along, it's really, really very disheartening. Because what does that really mean? It really means that, let's say, first of all, not everybody reaches it. Number one, not everybody reaches to do it. We said earlier, the Rambam says not every Chacham reaches. We hope there will be some people that will reach to it. Even those people who do reach it, when do they reach it? In the end of their lives, when they mature or they get older, when they reach a certain maturity. 
Why would that say that all the mitzvahs that I did not for the right purposes are garbage? I'm serving myself, I'm not serving God. I gave a lot of charity, but if I did it just to publicize my name, it's valueless, it's nothing. It's eventually one day I will do it lishma for the right purpose. Okay, so now everything I did till then means nothing. So then you can really take chas for shalom, chas for shalom. You say 90% of all the mitzvot, of all the generations, of people, everybody, people did it for other ulterior motives. Not everybody did it for the right purposes. And God forbid you can erase that. So Chassidus says, actually this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is a pirush. He says, mitoich shaloy lishma. Mitoich means inside. <laughs> he says, mitoch means not just from doing it like this, you will eventually do it like that. No, no, no. He says in every act you have, there is a conscious and there is a subconscious. Deep, deep inside in the subconscious when a Jew is doing a mitzvah, he's always doing it for the right purposes because his neshama is divine and his soul wants to connect and do what God wants because it's part of God. So the soul, this is Hashem's desire. So of course it's my desire. If the neshama and Hashem are one, of course it's your desire because it's what Hashem wants. It's only that there's an outer, external, outer person. There's an outer human, an outer being that's not, that is, that is not consistent, that's not sensing your inner, your inner self. There is a disconnect. There's a certain dissidence, a certain disconnect between the outer and the inner. So therefore, when you're doing a mitzvah, it's not only you're doing the mitzvah, your nesham is doing the mitzvah, and your soul is doing it for the right purpose. So every mitzvah is divine. Every mitzvah is holy. Every mitzvah is godly. Because even though on the outside it appears to be for other reasons, since by the giving, now again, this only began by the giving of the Torah. Since by the giving of the Torah, heaven and earth were connected, that means that you as you are in your physical world down here are connected to your essence. And the two have merged together to be totally one. And therefore... When you're doing a mitzvah, you're doing it from your godly self, even if you're unaware of it. And you're accomplishing in the physical object, you're connecting the physical object to its godly source. When we ask the question, how can all Jews participate in making a mishkan? The answer is because every Jew, no matter how he looks on the outside, every Jew, be'etzim, is a godly being. Of course, you don't have to be a tzaddik. Every Jew, even if on the externally it seems to be as an ordinary person, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. If to you God is ordinary, then is then an ordinary Jew. Every Jew, due to the fact that he has a neshama, which is a piece of Hashem, and a piece of God is the whole God, so why can't he build himself a house? Do you realize what's going on over here? A Jew can build Hashem a home because a Jew is one with Hashem. So when he's building, and even again, but the whole chiddush over here is even if the person is not conscious of it. He's, he, he's conscious only of his very, very material, physical urges and desires and all kinds of calc. That's all external. We, we dismiss all of that. The Abishter sees the truth of the Jewish neshama coming through in that activity. If that's the case, if a Jew is a piece of God from above, that means that spirit, let's begin spiritually. Spiritually, every Jew is wealthy. How wealthy? Super wealthy. You have everything. If you're a piece of Hashem from above, you can't be lacking anything. That means in truth, how much spiritual wealth does, it, does, does every single Jew, man, woman, and child have? Endless. Endless spiritual wealth. Why? Because you're a piece of Hashem from above. So the wealth is... And since 
The physical and the spiritual are now merging together. By the giving of the Torah, the physical and the spiritual are now converging together. And the spiritual is manifesting in the physical. That means the two have to align. So if you're spiritually wealthy, you're physically wealthy as well. That means that even if technically there is a problem, and not every Jew is a billionaire, in the literal sense, in this world, for whatever reason, but essentially, because you are in a Shama, and because you're in a piece of God, you are a billionaire. So for instance, if I'm going fundraising, and I call for an appointment of a very, very, very important philanthropist, and I'm trying to reach this person for two years, and finally after two years, I've landed an appointment, and I go and I meet with this person, it's like this guy is a, is a, is a multi-billionaire, and he gives me uh, 20 minutes to meet with him and present to him what I am looking for. Am I going to walk in and ask for $18? And if I ask for $18 from this individual, is this not shaming the person that that's what you came to me for $18? When you meet a person like that, you're asking him for $2 million for your operation that you're doing because he's a billionaire. That's what, he's expecting you to ask that. When God comes to ask, the first thing that Moshe Rabbeinu was making the first appeal, and he's asking Jews, it would be a disgrace if he's asking for copper. Copper? Even silver? Gold! Every Jew, gold! A Jew is wealthy. A Jew should be wealthy. Technically, for whatever reason, you squandered the gold you took out of Egypt. You whatever, have this. Okay, that's a problem. That's, that, that's an external technical element. The request of how Hashem sees us, gold. Every Jew deserves gold. And he is rich. That's the, that, and, and, put it, and the only way we're able to build the Mishkan, the only way we can even build the Mishkan is if we are in that princely godly state. If we're not in the princely, who are you? Who are you, Shmegegi? Who are you, little pipsqueak, to think that you can build a building for God? Obviously, if you're participating in this appeal, if you're participating in this endeavor, if you are contributing, you better get in touch with your godly soul, because why else are you coming here? If you're not a godly being, so then a human being, an angel can't build a, can't build a temple for God. A, a, even the archangel, Michael and Gabriel, can't build a temple for God. They're, they're creations. They live within time and space. How can they even entertain the thought of building a home for God? It's ridiculous. If you're coming and you're showing up, it's because you're a godly being. If you're a godly being, give me the gold. The Abishter says about himself, Liha Kesef, Liazov, God is the wealthiest. Hashem is the wealthiest. Liyah Kesef, to me is silver, to me is gold. So what is the lesson of Parshas Truma? The lesson that we have from Parshas Truma is that we have to stop thinking of ourselves as tiny little insignificant entities in this world. We have to realize that each and every one of us at all times, our true identity, no matter what we're going through, no matter in which state we're in, no matter what, what our failures and our mess-ups, and no matter whatever other aspects of life, and whatever 
you know, my mother who always put me down, or my, or this, or my older siblings who always treated me like I'm, I'm, I'm nothing, or this one who always said this about me, and I create for myself a self-image based on all these external things to forget about and realize, what does God see in me? God has invested His very essence inside of me. And therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm one with Hashem. And therefore, our capabilities are infinite. And we have unbelievable capabilities. And if we spoke about before, why is this the time for joy? Pasha's Truma is the time of joy. Well, this, med- this idea, how can this not make a person exhilarated with, crazy with joy? That there's nothing in the world, there's no situation in the world that can change your identity, your essence. You can, there can be wear and tear on the external part of who I am, but not on my essence. And therefore, if I was to meet the God, God would treat me as if I'm meeting a piece of himself. And who, what is he asking from me? He's asking me gold. That means I deserve and I should be wealthy. This is the greatest simcha, the greatest joy. Because with this we can, we can never, this, we never become small, we never become crushed. Now this would also go hand in hand with what we know. The Talmud tells us about the specialty of the month of Adar. That in the month of Adar, Bori Mazle, that the mazel of the Jewish people is very strong. The mazel means our... Uh, astrological power, our astrological sign. Um, to the point that the Talmud says that if you're having some kind of a dispute with a non-Jew, you should try to go to litigation, to court, hold the court date in the month of Adar, because that's when uh, the mazel of the Jewish people is strong. The Mepharshim asked, the Marsha asked the question, there is a rule we know, ain mazel Yisrael, that the Jewish people are not under the zodiac, they're not under any astrological uh, confinement, any sign, uh, because we're directly under God. So how does it fit with what we're saying that our mazel is strong? So the Marsha answers whatever he says, but in, uh, related to what we've been saying, see, we take a look at Rashi. Rashi says that when it says, ain't mazel Yisrael, it doesn't mean that there is no mazel. Everything that's under the clouds, meaning everything that's under the sun, including the Jewish people, when we're inhabited, incar- incarnated in bodies, we are kind of part of the system of this world. Rashi says, however, that the, when we say there's no mazel to the Jewish people, it means that through prayer we can change the mazel. Uh, we, we, we're not stuck, we're not fixed, but we can change the mazel. So what's, but, but here we're saying in the month of Ador that the mazel of every Jew, no matter when you're born, what, where and when, your mazel is strong in the month of, in the month of Ador. That doesn't seem like through prayer, it's just an, an inherent thing in the month of Ador. But based on what we had been talking about before, about the novelty and the greatness of what happened after the giving of the Torah, so we can understand. You see, the reason why a Gentile cannot change their mazel, and the Jew could change his mazel, at least through prayer, and that is because we are connected to our original, original source. And our original source that is one with God, that's the creator of the mazel, and it's definitely not subject to the rules of the, of, the, uh, the, of the astrological uh, aspects of the celestial uh, forces above. Because we're above it all. So that's why a Jew has the ability to overcome and go and, and have power over those astrological signs and over the zodiac and the like. Through prayer. The chiddush, the novelty of the month of Adar, is that even without any prayer, when the month of Adar comes, we become our connection to our deeper, truer self, who we really are at our essence manifests on its own in the month of Ador. 
The meaning is, so then we're, and what does that do? It's not that it erases our mazel, but it bury mazle. It, it, it enhances, it empowers, it strengthens the mazel of the Jewish people. And that's what we've been talking about all along the whole time. In other words, it's not, we're not dismissing the fact that we find ourselves in a body and we have all of our externalities of our, of our physical existence, including our, what we might call the limitations and our failures and, and, and all the stuff and all the baggage that we have. That is true, but that never defines you. That never limits you. That should never say, I'm stuck in so-and-so. Because after the giving of the Torah, our truest essence of who we are is not up there, but down here manifest in our life. Before the giving of the Torah, it was Elohim Bashamayim, Va'atal Oretz. That means you, you can have a godly source in heaven, but you are now on the earth, and you have to, and you're limited and confined by whatever limitations, including the Mazalis. After the giving of the Torah, the lower Jew and the higher Jew and the quintessential Jew are always connected. And that's the power of the month of Adar. For there we also have because the greatest joy we can have is the appreciation and understanding that we always are above it all. There's never a situation that truly limits us and gets us stuck. You know, we're living in times where, you know, once Mashiach is going to come, the truth is going to be revealed. The true light of the Jewish people is going to start shining. And the true essence of who we are is going to be revealed. It's going to be very, very, very powerful. But right before Mashiach comes, there is this extreme tension of a tug of war. The exile is trying to hold on to us. But on the other hand, the redemption is already bursting. So now, the, but if anybody is a little sensitive, you can feel this tension going on deep inside, back and forth and back and forth. And it's so clear that the Eight Sahara, the evil inclination and the Galut in general, wants to, wants to stifle us, wants to choke us, wants to constrict us, not to be aware of our true essence, of our true godliness, of our true souls. And, and he puts us down and he makes us feel like we're worthless and that we can't really make a difference. So I'd like to share with you just quickly, briefly, an example of two individuals that are heroes in my mind. Unbelievable heroes that have demonstrated you can't crush. There was a fellow who was just released from jail. His name, was, his name is Sholem Mordechai Rubashkin. Now, I don't know if you paid close attention to the story. He was, he was, he, he was because of some, the, he was involved in a slaughterhouse and so on and so forth, and they accused him for whatever kind of things. It was a very, very unfair situation. If he did something wrong, possibly, but they blew it up. The federal government blew this up and they threw the book at him. Father, I think, of 13 or 15 children, threw him into jail for 27 years for a financial something, which they themselves caused that made him, I'm really a Lloyd Dover, I'm really a nothing, really. And if, 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 the, if there was a crime to be done, so a year in jail is more than what others would get. 27 years. If you listen to Sholem Mordechai Ribashkin tell, he told stories, he's telling you, like, amazing. He was, he was there for eight years and, and, and President Trump just commuted, commuted his, 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 um, his, uh, his, his, his uh, sentence. Now, you know, he describes that in jail, in, in prison, they, even though they, you know, we're, we're an American prison, but they, they have a psychological torture. They have a system of turning you into literally an animal. They have a system of totally breaking you down. They lock you up in your room sometimes for no reason for three hours. 
You can't go out, you're sitting in isolation. You get, you're, you're, I don't know where, everybody, and they go and they search, and they'll search your room a thousand times for nothing, because they decided. They do it systematically, and you go through it for months, they turn you into feeling like you're literally subhuman. They, they do that, there's a system of doing that, because they, maybe they feel they have more control over the people when they're that way. But in any case, for whatever the reason, that's what they do. He decided that he is never, ever becoming a prisoner. That's not who he is. And he was absolutely demanding in that prison for every little thing. He wanted to take Negelvas. You're supposed to put water next to your bed every day. So he demanded the rights to be able to do the fine. But there was only a bathroom where you can get the water. In Hasidic, there's a Hasidic sensitivity that when you take water to wash your hands, Negelvas, you don't use bathroom water. You should take it from a regular sink. He fought his way. He wasn't, and it's only just having Negelvasser by your bed is special. Having Negelvasser that doesn't come from the bathroom is an extra, extra hidur. It's an extra thing that the, he put his foot down and he was not going to leave them alone until they gave it to him. And it was for another one. He, was lit, he lit Hanukkah candles. He managed to have a menorah. And he did, but he didn't want to do it in his cell because there was, there was no partition in front of the bathroom. And he said, in front of a bathroom, you won't like a holy menorah, in front of a toilet. And he prevailed, and they gave in to him. Every single one of his religious demands, he did to the end. He didn't change one tiny bit. And he kept his spirits up. And here's the thing, you know, you know what you means to look at 27 years? And he knows that they were so vicious that they were gonna keep him there no matter what. Because they tried, and every single thing they tried failed. Every single thing. And he lived with Bitochen that he's coming out because he knew that he's above it all. He understood and he knew and he fought that exile. He didn't allow the exile to crush him. And the miracle happens for him. Here's another good friend of mine. His name is Rabbi Yitzi Horowitz. Some people are familiar with him. He's having his 46th birthday. This Shabbos, I think, is his 46th birthday. Good friend. He was a Chabad emissary in Temecula. For four or five years ago, six years ago, I remember exactly how many years it was, he was diagnosed with ALS. It came upon him, it came upon him, it came on to literally it shut him down completely. Literally can't move a muscle, can't move a limb. Can't move a limb in his body. Talk about carcination, talk about imprisonment. A taking away from a person everything, everything, everything. I see that as the fight of the exile, trying to crush, trying to constrict a Jewish soul. But a Jewish soul is unconstrictable. Because a Jewish soul is a piece of God from above. So just like in Rubashkin, that powerful prison could not slam its gates upon him. Even this deeper imprisonment cannot crush the soul of Yitzhi Horowitz, if you know him. Every week with his eyes looking at a screen, he writes with his eyes, he writes a teaching of inspiration on the parsha, And he sends it out and it's read by hundreds of people. It takes tremendous effort. But he says, I, I can inspire people. Now, he was an emissary to inspire people before. When he had his hands and feet and all his limbs, he did it with all his limbs. Now he doesn't have any limbs, but he has his eyes and he can see. And with that, and every time you go to him, his, visit him, his eyes are laughing. His eyes are full of light. You see joy. He's not allowing the circumstance to throw him under the bus. So this week, in honor of his 46th birthday, they're doing a campaign. What does he want? What's his wish? That in his, for him, people should be inspired. He, they're working, Chabad boys, 
to get 4,600 people to put on tefillin this week that haven't done it before. And, they, and the campaign is that people, you go to a friend who doesn't wear tefillin, ask him to put on tefillin, take a picture and send it. And if we can get 4,600 Jews for his 46th birthday, and that's his joy. What is that, Shale? That is the idea. You can't constrict me. You can't constrict me. I know who I am. I have a deeper inner worth. I'm a godly soul. My body doesn't work. It's shutting down on me. That doesn't change for one iota my true self, my true who I am. And this is something that, see, that inspires me tremendously. These are people that inspire me. Because we all get into this darkness. We all get into this weakness. We try this and it doesn't work. We have all kinds of hang-ups. We have all kinds of things to tell ourselves that we're failures. And when you realize, and here's what I wanted to conclude with. The Rebbe in this talk says as follows. He concludes. And he says, now, he says, every Jew needs to know they're a piece of God from above, and therefore you're rich. You're very rich. Therefore, number one, you need to, you need to become spiritually rich. Realize that you're entitled to have spiritual wealth because of who you are. Learn Torah, learn Kabbalah, learn Hasidut, learn the inner esoteric things. Don't say, who am I to learn? No! No! God knows everything, you should know everything. Have an appetite, have an endless appetite. But the Rebbe adds more. He says, especially in our generation, it's the generation that Moshiach is coming to. Moshiach needs rich Jews. The Rebbe says, in addition to being wealthy spiritually, we have to, the hirah, the teaching of Parshish Truma is that a Jew needs to be wealthy physically. He says, and those Jews that are not wealthy yet is because God wants them to put their finger in, to put in work in becoming wealthy. You'd wonder, I never heard something like this. Is it a virtue to try to be wealthy? So the Rebbe says, yes, now yes. Why? If you're God's child, if you're Hashem's, if you're a prince, not only that, you're a piece of Hashem from above, how can you not be wealthy? Add to that, he says, very soon we're going to build the third temple. If we're going to build the third temple, we'll need donations. What are you going to bring? An old pair of socks? An old pair of pants? You want to be able to bring gold and silver. Now is the time to work on becoming Ashirim. Such words? I was baffled when I read this. Whoever said something like, you're not going to... It's a mitzvah, he says. Today's days, Jews need to be wealthy. If chas v'shalem, the wealth is still hidden, it's because the Eberster wants us to achieve it through work. If we achieve it through work, it's going to... Now, so what's the attitude? The attitude is like this. I'm, going to, oh, I'm trying to be wealthy. No, no, no. First of all, if you approach your life by knowing you are wealthy. You know, sometimes you have people who are very successful. Very successful. They made a lot of money. Very successful. And for some, they go through a hardship time in life. They lose their money. But yet, they know they're rich even when they're poor. And they know that they go, into, they go back in and new businesses and that, they become wealthy again. Because they have an attitude of a rich person. They think big. They think broad. They're not constricted. They're not sitting and nickel and diming every dollar. Today I went, I was frustrated because I learned this after a story. In the morning I had to take my son to carpool. I was without any gas. Literally, without gas. My wife laughed last week told me and I laughed at her. She said, ooh, uh, 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 you should go get, you, you need gas soon. She told me this, you need to get some more gas. And I looked at my fuel and I said, what are you talking about? It's a half a tank. She says, oh, I always fill up when I pass by that, that gas station because the prices are low, so I always get the, the gas. Now I'm stuck and I ended up on Olympic and I realized any second I'm, I'm, the car looks like it's going to stop. So I pulled into the gas station and I'm looking at it, it's $4, even the cheapest gas, $4 a gallon. And, I'm, and I remember what my wife told me, so I'm thinking to myself, $4? dollars a gallon 
So I say, you know what, I'm filling up a half a tank, not a whole tank. I fill up the car, 10, 10 gallons, it's still at 20 gallons, or 18 gallons. Fine, and I'm not feeling, okay, good, you know what, I saved my dent. So then when I learned this, I sat down and I calculated. 18, I made a difference of like, over here you can get it for 29, for 329, and over there it cost uh, $4, like 70 cents. I basically realized that the entire difference is $10. But since I took five, since I took a half a tank, it's $5. So I'm thinking to myself, is that the way a Jew should live? The silly $5, you're going to sit and make yourself crazy, you're not going to fill up your car because you're going to go get the $5 somewhere? If you think that way, then we live in constricted consciousness. We live like a poor man. And if we live like a poor man, we remain poor. Stop it! I'm not saying you're not supposed to be reckless, especially someone like me runs an organization, we're taking money from the community. I know that. But this whole idea, like, eh, 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 that, this is all, this, this, is, this is no good, no good. This is, this is limiting, this doesn't put, if you know you're a rich man, you know you're wealthy, you just have to, you happen to need to have to find the money, but you really are wealthy. And you need the money, why? Because very soon we're going to build a base on Megdash. Very soon we're going to, we, we need, and, and a Jew, a Jew, like, you know, a very wealthy person, when he has a child, who comes and he comes to a wedding or something, and he looks like a schlepper, he, he's embarrassed with him. The Abishter is embarrassed. God wants all Jews to be billionaires. That's it. That's the teaching of Parshas Truma. Be wealthy. We are wealthy. Spiritual wealth. Physical wealth. And with that attitude, we have such joy, such simcha. Nothing can crush us. Nothing can limit us. Nothing can constrict us. We are infinitely rich. We are infinitely wealthy. We are infinitely valuable. And even if the outside were struggling with something, realize it's only external, it's only superficial. Your true self is godly and holy, eternal, wealthy and strong. May we merit to see the coming of Mashiach. May it be now. Yes, or failure.